Um, I want to invite my, my friend, Antong. Man, I'm so, it just blesses my heart so much that you're here. Um, I, I've kind of given you guys a little bit of background on Antong, but he's just, we, we've gotten the chance to hang out a few times, and I'm just so thankful for, the, the, for everything that's happening through him. I don't even like, I could, I'd have to take 10 minutes to tell you everything that is happening um, through him. But I just, I just want you to know that we're just blessed to have you here. We're so blessed to have you here. And we're just honored that you would come here. I know that, that he's used to speaking to crowds larger than Clearpath is. <laughs> it's just pretty easy to accomplish. But, <laughs> but we're so thankful that you're here, man. And we're just, we're just, we're just blessed. And so, please, let's give him a hand. Come hang with us. Can we get another mic? Okay. Fellow East Dallas, I still got to get you this hat, man. Oh, let me, let me see here. We're going to make sure recording this. We good to go? All right. How you doing tonight, man? I'm doing fine, man. All right. I really want to just stay. I, we have to give a hand to that worship team. I just want to stay right there. I was. You didn't tell me you had some superstars. Some superstars, man. I told you. I, had I just wanted to leave man. once they finished. <laughs> wow. You're the superstar tonight, man. You're gonna have to help us. No, so, I don't think so. <laughs> can, can, before we okay, get started. This is my mentee. Can I have him to open us up with prayer? Yes, please. Have him. And then he's going to go back to the back and finish playing with the rest of the kids. <laughs> I'm budging on this time right now. Yeah, this is William. Y'all give William a hand. Will everybody please bow your heads? God, I thank you for this world that you made for us today, God. And I pray that one day all this gun violence and everything will stop, God. And we won't even need guns, God. And I pray that one day we'll stop separating ourselves with states and cities. And the world will just be united for once, God. And I pray that this whole world will be happy and keep us away from her harm or danger. And I pray that you will cover us over this world no matter what state what, whatever, whoever we are, whatever we are, and I pray that you will fix us in whatever sins we do and whatever we do, God, and I pray that you will take us over, God, and make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. That was a serious prayer. <laughs> wow. That was awesome. Man, the, the, the trouble with interviewing you is I don't even know where to start. Um, <laughs> You know, I've I've gotten a chance to to talk. You know, we've we've Anton and I over the last couple of years we hadn't hung out too much, but we're starting to just like I just like the guy. I just <laughs> just think of him as a friend. And yeah. but well, just kind of tell us a little bit about what what you're doing right now, and you know, then we'll backtrack and talk about your story. Okay, right now, how y'all doing? Okay, I'm Anton Gluckis. Jordan mentioned, I am the National Engagement Director for uh, an organization called Urban Specialists. And what Urban Specialists does is we go around the country uh, training individuals out of neighborhoods 
on how to go back into their own neighborhoods and mentor young people so that they don't get caught up in gangs and violence. And so we've expanded to a couple of different states and we're constantly growing. So that's, that's the buck of my schedule right now, just going into these other cities, finding individuals who can go into their neighborhoods. Because our whole deal is trying to end the senseless violence that we're seeing nightly on the news. Yeah, and like the, to give a context, like like the kind of people that you've been involved with working. I mean, I, I don't want to make you throw out names, but it's like senators, governors, billionaires. The, the Koch brothers, didn't they come down to South Dallas and hang with you guys? Oh, uh, yeah. If yeah. you don't know the Koch, Koch brothers, yeah. a couple brothers worth $50 billion. Yeah. And um, yeah. Anton's hosting them. Yeah. You know, tell them just... Just give people a little context of kind of the global. Yes. I know you're a humble guy, but I'm trying to give people yeah. awareness. Yeah, it's hard. But uh, yes, Charles, Charles, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Chase, uh, they're a family, a uh, great family that's doing a lot of work uh, around this country. We was fortunate enough to connect with them probably about four or five years ago. And uh, through that relationship, it's become close family relationship. Uh, we are vision aligned with trying to help the least of these. And so we do a lot of stuff with Charles Coke, not just Charles Coke, but a lot of people uh, that's in the space of just trying to battle our world. So I do a lot of stuff. And it's hard talking about that. I'm just going to let you know that. Yeah. Because I don't know. Hey, like, here's the, here's the deal. I know you're not, like, but the thing I like about you is that you're kind of this bridge guy. Like you're working with people across every end of the spectrum of whatever the spectrum is. And so it's just something cool about you. Thank you. Yeah. So, so before we just jump into some specific subjects, I, I want to, I think the most powerful thing about your life is, is the story that God has just so beautifully crafted in you. Tell, tell, tell us, like take us back to Anton as a little kid you know, tell us what, what's going on in your world. Man, I can do that. All right. Um, my name, oh, I'll tell you guys my name. <laughs> I told y'all my name. And you, and you sat talking in front of a big crowd. With this crowd here, I'm, it just it feels so much family, and I'm just, man, it's, I ain't never been shook up and <laughs> without words. It's the worship. The worship and good people does that to me. But, um, I was born in a Frazier Courts housing projects, single mother, and I'm going to kind of give you just kind of the high points of it. Uh, single mother, my father at nine months was sentenced to 50 years in prison, uh, and he ultimately did 38 years flat out of my life. So you can imagine as a child growing up without your father, uh, my mother was a young mother. Uh, and she did the best she could with what she had and what she knew. But growing up, I've, I had a void in my life because my mother, no one ever told me about my father. And it was something that I always wanted to know. And, I, and the only conversation I could get of him was when someone would say, you look like your father. But no one would ever give me context. And, and I remember as a kid feeling void and growing up. So eventually... Uh, around the age of 13, some friends of mine. Now, let me back up for a second. I was a straight-A student, honor-roll student. My mother worked long, long hours, so my grandmother 
and my grandfather became my primary caretakers. And so uh, they the one that taught me values and uh, morals and stuff like that. But uh, did they raise you in church too? Was that a thing? Well, they, well, I went to church a couple of times. I went like to a, once a year. Guy. Yeah, yeah, I was once a year. <laughs> Easter, Easter, and Easter Sunday, I went to church because uh, they died uh, when I was thirteen. My grandmother and grandfather died, so they died pretty early. But uh, they was my primary caretakers, straight A students. But as much as I loved going to school, as much as I loved bringing home good grades to my grandmother and grandfather, because my mother worked, worked long hours, it was no match for the environment that I grew up in. It was no match for the ideals that was in the environment that I grew up in. Uh, I found myself as a kid uh, being bused to a school in another neighborhood. And I found that our kids were very cruel when you're young. And so we would fight, you know, just for no reason. Uh, and at the time, in Dallas, the early 90s, uh, late 80s, early 90s, Dallas had uh, embraced this gang culture, and there's a lot of kids with Crips uh, that identified with the Crip gang. And so my neighborhood in East Dallas, we, ha we hadn't identified with no gang. And so when we, we met these kids, it was always a confrontation. And so uh, that happened for a while. You know, and I and I tried my best to you know stay focused on school, but I couldn't because I was worried about safety. And in, in my neighborhood, the name of the game was survival, so I was thinking about survival. And so a lot of those actions, a lot of stuff that was happening, uh, took me down some roads. It took me down some paths that uh, I end up getting all away from school, getting away from school, uh, fighting every day started committing crimes when I was young. Uh, when I was in seventh grade, this was kind of like this, the, the combination of everything. When I was in seventh grade, uh, I came to school one day, and the, and the Crip gang said they wanted to fight me, they wanted to jump me for some reason, I don't even remember. But I got to school that day, uh, seventh grade, got off the school bus, and there was a crowd waiting on me. And um, when I, I remember coming up the hill, ready to fight. I was ready to fight. And I heard somebody say, shoot him. And uh, a girl that's a friend of mine jumped in front of me and a gunshot went off. And she was shot. Uh, she took the bullet from me. And I remember laying on the ground as everybody was scared, feeling her blood, trying to hold her wound. I felt this rage inside of me. I felt this I, it was a rage. I can't even explain it. And um, late on that day, a couple of friends and cousins, I, we said, because it was Crip, we said that we were going to be bloods. And, and this was, it wasn't bloods in Dallas. Uh, we just knew that the bloods was the rival to the Crips. Uh, and man, that, that decision that we made, was a tough decision. I didn't understand the ramifications of that. A uh, couple of years later, some close friends of mine uh, went to prison for life. Uh, 1994, 
Chris did a drive by my neighborhood. I saw a friend of mine who was a good kid. He worked. He wasn't involved in the gang stuff that we was involved in. He was coming home from work, and I flagged him down. And I asked him to take us to go avenge this drive by. Um, to my surprise, he said yes. Got in the car. We loaded up eight people in a two door car. Went to the neighborhood. Um, um, five minutes later, my friend, who wasn't a gang member, we were leaving him on the back street with a bullet in his head. He died. And I never forget telling his mother what had happened, how it hurt me to tell her that I flagged your son down and that I left your son on the back street with a bullet in his head. And so fast forward a couple years, man, I, and that never left me. I was, my daughter was born May 5th, May 7th, and I remember saying to my daughter, as an as a infant at the hospital, that I ain't going to leave you like my father did me. May 21st, I was standing in the courtroom expecting to go home, and the judge looked at me and said, you're a menace to society, and sentenced me to prison. Walking out that courtroom, I'm looking at my mother, how disappointed she was. Uh, I began to be introspective right there at that point, saying, how did I go from a past student to being called a menace to society? How old were you then? So you you started this 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 new gang movement in Dallas in response to this pain, right? And you end up here. How how long did they sentence? They sentenced me to seven years State Department criminal justice. So many so many side questions I I, I want to ask, but um, but what. You know what happened? What were the kind of the the you, you kind of even talked about how you didn't realize how fast it was going to grow, like when you when you started moving down this road. And I guess that that is the power of violence and hatred and right. anger and rage. And you know, right? Yeah. One of the things we said uh, that I said uh, because it was it was that rage, and and, I, and it's a lot of other stuff that happened in between. I'm just giving some high points, but uh, at that particular time. You know, it was 50 to 1 in terms of Crips. Uh, we made that decision. It grew. I mean, I had people coming. We had people coming from Richardson, Plano, Garland, you know, white, Mexican, black, that were praising us, saying they down. They were pledging their life to this idea that we created. Uh, I didn't expect that. You know, I didn't. And they were looking at me and my cousin as the leader. Uh, so yeah, it, it, it grew like exponentially. Oh, um, why don't you take us to, um, I, know, I know that a lot of the, the change, a lot of, um, of, of God really opening up your heart about the struggles there and 
also, just with the kind of God starting to break through. Oh yeah, I, uh, it was weird though when I when I got to prison. Uh, the inmates, the other inmates, were coming to me, and it was almost this celebrity type of feeling. You know, people were paying homage to me, and I was young, and so. Uh, but I was still dealing with what had just happened to me in court. Talking about the menace, where you started right. thinking, like, thinking. okay, is this right? Because one of the first things I did was I started replaying my life. You know, replaying. The, the decisions that I made, what influenced me. I started doing that from, from that holdover cell all the way to prison. And so I, I ended up prison thinking about those things, thinking about how I ended up in this predicament. And so when I got, when I got to prison, uh, people were coming from everywhere, you know. And so I had a choice right then. You know, I had a choice because they were saying, they wanted, the Bloods wanted me to call the shots in prison. Uh, and that's, and, and I wasn't, my mind wasn't there, you know. And it was a guy in prison, and I'm going to get to your question, but it was a guy in prison. This is your show, man, you're yeah. good. <laughs> it, was, it was a guy in prison that approached me uh, early in my, in my sentence. And he, he, it was an older guy, he had been there 15 years, and he said, he said, little brother, and I didn't know him. He said, little brother, he said, I've been paying attention to you. And he said, all these people that have been coming, paying homage to you, who are you, first of all? And then he said, uh, I want to just tell you something. He said, if you have the ability to lead these guys to do wrong, you have the ability to lead them to do right. He said, you're a leader. And that was the first time I had ever heard something like that. To the point that it, it blew my mind. I went back to my cell first. I was saying, how this, how, when this dude was watching me, you know, and then it started making me think. Because like, <laughs> I had never. That police song kept never right. <laughs> So I never paid attention to that. I never paid attention to that. And this brother began to be my mentor, prison mentor. He started giving me books to read, you know, and he would, and he would make me read these books. And I would go. Like what kind of books are you talking about? Man, he gave me every book. I've read probably seven, eight hundred books. Uh, he was giving me everything. I mean, a little bit of everything. Because like when we met that first day, you were like talking about Aristotle and oh, Socrates. Yeah. And I'm going to get to that. <laughs> <laughs> so he was giving me these books. And first thing I realized was that it's a lot of stuff that I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know a lot of stuff. And I thought I knew everything when I was 18. But I realized I, it was a lot of stuff that I didn't know. And so this brother would give me books. I go read them, come back to him to discuss them, and he would say, go read it again. He would make me do that five times, and I was actually doing it. And then he, t he would tell me later that it was for, for better retention and all that good stuff. And so I started reading. This brother became my mentor. I credit a lot of my transformation to that brother because he, he was an older inmate, and he really helped me mature in my mind. He, he really made me understand my role and my position that brother that I'm speaking of, that was his son who just did the press. That was his son. That's his son uh, that did the prayer, William, because so, he's still in prison. And so I mentor his son uh, because of what he did for me. But, in, but in, in prison, I begin to read, I begin to study, 
And you got to understand, I denounced my gang in prison. And you got to tell us kind of what that means in for all of us who haven't actually been in prison. Right. And I'm not glorifying <laughs> prison now. I might talk about it a lot, but I'm not glorifying it. But in prison, it's racially segregated. I'm quite sure y'all know that, you know, you have white Arab Brotherhood over here, Arab Nation. You have Tango Blast, Mexican Mafia, BBL, Blood Crips, like that. And so when you go to prison, you're expected to go with your race. You can't mix with nobody else that's, that's not your race. And so, it's just, and it's like that because that's your protection. You know, Mexican Mafia gonna protect, Alien Nation gonna protect, you know, that's your protection. Bloods gonna protect Crips. And so for me, when I started really working on myself, I denounced my gang in prison. And that's something you just don't do because then it makes you pray. But I was so committed. Uh, I was listening. And I'm not ashamed to say God found me in prison. Prior to that, I had no understanding, no real working, functional fundamental understanding of God but in prison God found me and I remember praying saying and my prayer is like I'm having a conversation my prayers is not elaborate and, and sound good I talk just like this you know in my prayer but I was asking God you know if, if you if you spare me if you help me because that's my first time in prison I'll give my life I'll be an example. And I said that. And so I was willing to deal with whatever ramifications or consequences came with that. But interesting enough, uh, I didn't have no issues. Uh, I began to read. And so I rose in the ranks quick. And a lot of people started coming to me for this. And I was young. I had grown men who were coming to me for relationship advice. It was crazy. 18 years old being in a relationship. With you got to tell me the food thing. <laughs> Didn't I? Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> so, cause me, me, and, me and Jordan was talking. He was trying to figure out how, how this is happening. And, and like I was saying, it wasn't organic. It wasn't nothing that I wrote down and planned. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have uh, money on my books and be able to go to commissary. And so when I would go to the store, this is how it started. I would have somebody, I couldn't cook, but I would have somebody cook like a big bucket of spreads, ramen noodles and roast beef and all that, and cheese and peppers and all that good stuff. And so when we would cook, I would look around the day room, which was, again, segregated, and I would find people and just take them something to eat. And I didn't care if it was somebody from the Mexican mafia, I didn't care if it was somebody from the Aryan nation, I just was compelled to feed people. And so I looked past the tattoos. I didn't care if you had lightning bolts and all that stuff. That didn't make, because I saw a human being. And so I would just start feeding people. And again, this wasn't planned. And uh, that became my, my, my way into having conversations. And so I started having conversations with these different brothers, different races. Just about basic, real stuff. Talking about how we allowed whatever it was in our life 
to put us in this place. I would have these kind of real conversations. And again, it wasn't planned. And so I became friends with a lot of different gangs, uh, a lot of different heads of gangs. And so whenever it was a problem in prison, especially a race war or something, something like that, who do you think they came to see? And so I found myself negotiating, you know, peace between the gangs and the prison. Whenever it was about to be a riot, uh, I would be, I didn't sign up for it. It just happened. I would be that person. And so uh, it taught me a lot. I mean, it taught me a lot because what I found was a lot of the people that we were having these issues with on the street, a lot of these people that that the system had taught us to hate and, and segregate from, I learned that we were all the same people with the same issue, with the same challenge, with the same fears, with the same hope, the same aspiration. I saw that. And so it compelled me to say, how can, it put me on this trajectory to say, how can we bridge this divide? How can we bridge this divide? And I'm going to tell you, y'all something that happened. I want a maximum security unit 30 minutes away from my house. I got visits every week. My family came to see me every week. And the work that I was doing in prison had reached to the top of the chain in prison that the chaplain came to me and said, I need you to go to this maximum security unit. Uh, it's a disciplinary unit. Most of the people there have life sentences. Uh, three and four life sentences, they're never going home, there's a lot of riots, a lot of lockdowns, but I need your leadership over there to go help that unit. And we're at the minimum security. Minimum security. And they're asking you to go to the maximum security really far away from your house. Far away from my house <laughs> and deadly. Yeah. Oh man, did I have a conversation with God? <laughs> 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 I remember having that conversation in my cell with God praying. Because, you know, that's a, you know, to make that, and that's my first time in prison, so, and last. But, you know, to make that decision to leave the comfort to go increase the work in another facility that's dangerous, that could be dangerous to me, uh, God assured me that uh, this was part of the plan. And so I called that, the chaplain and told him that I would do that. So, so I don't want to put you into saying stuff you don't want to say, but do, do you mind talking about the religious component of it for you at that time? Oh, yeah. Because this will just make your story even more interesting. At the time, I was practicing Islam. I became an imam in Islam. Uh, like you went all the way to, to yeah. imams like a leader in right. Islam. Because like I was within a, prison. Within prison, I became an imam in Islam. So I was practicing Islam. Uh, and the chaplain was the Islam chapter, chaplain, who, who said, I need you to go to George Beto 1, they're indulging in homosexuality, selling cigarettes, they're fighting, they're riding, they're doing everything, but I need your leadership. And so I, I went over there, and I, I was just telling him about this story when I got there. Uh, you had a look, I started speaking, I didn't know none of these people, I started speaking. Uh, this at, is at the new prison. At the new prison. Yeah. Uh, Juma service. Pauline service, and word had got out to the other, to the prisoners, and so everybody was coming to see me speak. You know, they were saying about this blood that changed his life, and he talking something. And so everybody was coming out. They used to have to try 
the wardens and the lieutenants and said, block the door because everybody's coming out trying to hear you speaking. And so I started speaking, and I was speaking truth. I'm the truth. I didn't know these guys. And so one little brother had found me. He, had, he, he sent word to me, tracked me down, uh, told me he needed to meet with me. I went and met with him. He said, I want to get my life together. I want to get my life right. But I had been kicked out of the brotherhood because I was engaged in homosexual activities, and now they don't want to deal with me anymore. So I, he said, but I heard about you, brother, and I heard your message. And so I said uh, to the little brother, I said, uh, okay, the first thing I need you to do is ask God for forgiveness and then forgive yourself and then meet me at service Friday. He said, cool. So we get to service after service. We go into the back part of the prison. A small, it's half this room, small little room. And so I'm at the table with the leaders the current leaders of that. Know these guys, I don't know these guys. I don't know these guys. Yeah, so at this table, you have 10 or 15 guys, life centers, four life centers, uh, 99 years, 99 years, 99 plus 40. Then you get to me, I got seven years. I was scared to me how much time I got. <laughs> I got seven years. And so we in this meeting, and, this, and, and, I, and I had the brother to bring himself up. And so the brother brought himself up and said, you know, he want to get his life back together. And uh, one of the brothers, Muslim brothers, who was an extremist by all means and all, all accounts, he looked at the little brother and he said, brother, don't you know the Quran says homosexuality is punishable by death? We should kill you. And he was serious. It was a lot of hatred coming from that, that I didn't feel like that God had anything to do with that. And he was saying, brother, we should kill you. We should kill you. Let us. And you know, he was going on. And so I'm sitting there and I'm just, I'm like this. And it's, and it's the tension in this room is thick. And so I said to the brother, you know, after he, he went on his rant, I said, well, brother, if, if the Quran say kill him, kill him. If you'll believe him. I said, kill him. Brother, look, everybody looked at me and they was like, this. I said, kill him if you'll believe him. Because I was trying to get them to understand how ridiculous that was. I was trying to get them to understand how insane what he was saying to that little brother who was only asking for help was. And so it was many situations like that that I had in Islam where I felt like, and it's no slant to Islam, but I felt like it was a lot, these brothers were practicing wrong and there was a lot of hatred and, and it didn't feel like God. And so I had an experience. You're, you're having this ongoing dialogue with God. Right. You're growing right. you know, as, a, as a man. I'm doing comparative religion, uh, trying yeah. to figure out God. I'm trying to hear God's voice. At some point you're like, okay, whoever's talking to me and working in me, right. it's not this. It's not, it's not this. This is not, this is not God. You realize how crazy your story is, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I did realize, I said, that's not God. And it was another situation with that same brother. Mind you, this brother cut his, and it's not about this brother, but I just got to tell y'all how insane it was. 
This brother cut his kids off, his family off, because they wouldn't become Muslims. So I felt something was wrong with that. And then we had another incident with two uh, young brothers in the kitchen reading the Bible. He burst in on them, stomped, grabbed their Bibles, threw it on the ground, stomped it. And they told me about it. And I was very, very uh, upset because I didn't feel like that epitomized what God, that wasn't God, it wasn't spiritual at all. You know, that understanding uh, is not God. So, so, so what's the, I, I, and this is one of the cool things about you, and we, we talked about this beforehand, yeah. is that for you, it's like God sort of broke into your world. And it's not like everything in your life changed. It's like there's two worlds that were sort of overlapping. What, at what point did 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 you did know? I have my solid experience? Oh yeah, yeah, that's yes. Let's do. We'll do that <laughs> on the road to Damascus. Yeah, I did. I had one of those because I had I was in I was in prison, and I was getting all this knowledge. I was reading and studying, and, and, and people were coming to me, and I had started. Uh, I used to debate with the uh, the guys in the prayer circle. You know the preachers, the pastors. I used used to debate with them, and I used to get a kick out of crushing people in debate about God. <laughs> I used to get a kick out of that crushing people until Don't one crush day, me. Yeah, until one day I was on my bunk and I had realized that I had became so bored and so numb. And I started questioning myself, but I felt like I was trapped inside this box. At the height of work, when people were kind of praising and coming to me and seeking advice and all that good stuff, I felt like I was empty. I felt like that brother that I confronted earlier, uh, I felt like that. I started seeing myself as him. And I was, I was in that box, man, and uh, I couldn't feel. I couldn't feel that information had me to where I couldn't feel. And I started praying to God, like, show me something different. You know, show me something different. How is it that, you know, I'm debating and getting a kick out of crushing? How does that help anybody? Who are you helping besides yourself? And it was these kind of conversations that I was having. It's kind of like, it was kind of like that experience, man. That, you know, that blinding experience that made me, and I asked God, I said, man, if you, again, because I know God got tired of me rationalizing, I said, if you get me out this box, I couldn't get out that box. I was stuck in that box, and I didn't, I, it's like I couldn't feel, and I knew that wasn't God. And, and so I asked God, I said, if you get me out this box, I may not be the best uh, wordsmith, I may not be the best, you know, quote quote of, of uh, scripture, but I'll be the best example in action. And so I, I, and I remember feeling this calmness over me in myself. Uh, and so it was like God just kind of gave me this calmness. But I was, I was numb. And, and, and I picked my Bible up and I started reading. I started reading. So you, you have to come to Jesus. You called it to come home, really. Yeah. yeah. It was. I mean, it was. I, 
because I'm telling you, I have been locked. I have been. I don't know if I'm adequately explaining the box and the board that was in my life a good job. at that particular point, but I was in a box and a board. You know, I was closed off and I was numb, and so uh, to get out that box, uh, to get out that box was like me getting out of prison while I'm in prison. Oh man! So you're you're like Saul, you know, like literally like Saul's story. I mean, he's like God's like you're opposing me, but you know, I want you with me. Um, I, so I, if I'm if I'm going ahead, you you just slow me down. Okay. Maybe you. So you you you're starting a relationship with Jesus. Where does Bishop Omar come into this story? I know that at some point, you, you know, I don't know if that's the best place to jump to right now. We can, because it's, 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 it's a lot, <laughs> and I understand. But um, well, you do do whatever you feel like you need to share. We were, um, I began working with the, the, the different gangs, I mean, the Bloods and the Crips. So talking to these brothers, we had, I started a book club in prison. We, uh, that's why we studied philosophy on the uh, radio, like Plato. And, and I'm going to tell you, one of Plato... You gotta, y'all have to visualize some hardened gang members on the rec yard talking about Plato and Aristotle. <laughs> but it was one, it was one in particular. I remember the cave in the Republic when uh, it that resonated with me, and I think it resonated with a lot of those guys. Uh, it, and it's when Plato was talking about five people being changed in a cave looking at a wall and a fire behind him. And every time someone would pass by the fire, it would cast a shadow on the wall. And then Plato was talking about how proficient these people had got at naming those shadows. And I'm paraphrasing. And so he said, imagine, if, if you will, they can't look to the right or left, the only, only way they can look is forward. He said, imagine, if you will, one of the persons in a cave escaping and as that person escapes, they come out to the sunlight and, real, and, and realize the source of all energy is this you know, And then they start seeing these objects that they named for what they really were because they had got proficient in the cave, cave of naming these objects. And then he said, imagine if that captive went back into the cave to the people who never left and tried to convince them that this shadow reality is not really the true reality. And so I remember sitting on the rec yard talking, talking to a lot of guys, talking about this, how we grew up and some of the subculture stuff that we accepted as normal that wasn't normal yeah. that became my reality. And now that we're being exposed to this new reality, it's our job to go back into the cave and bring out the people who are still in the cave. And I remember those brothers, yes! <laughs> but it was it happened just like that. We was on the rec yard discussing it. Wow. So shadow, <coughs> shadow naming. Yeah. That's yes, beautiful. Yes. So we were doing that. So I, I was beginning to work with the brothers, different gangs. Right? By this time, you know, we really doing some work talking about, you know, how we got here in the whole nine yards. So we got these brothers pumped about, you know, working with anybody, you know, we, and it was crazy because our circle was diverse. I mean, you got the, you got the guy sitting here with a big old swastika on his head. You got a dude right here 
with all these tattoos on him, but we all sitting around as brothers. That was so powerful to me. I didn't understand it at the time, but when I was when I was mature enough to understand it, and I thought about it, what we were actually doing around that wreck yard with diverse people who were taught to hate each other, but we were brothers eating together, laughing together. On a max, micro level, it showed me uh, what we could do on a macro level. We are going to ask you some questions here at the end about the, the, the whole subject, but I want to hear... Um, Bishop Obama? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so I'm sitting in the day room, sitting in the day room. I wrote up a program to, for when I get out, how I was going to attack this problem of gang uh, prevention. You wrote a program in prison? In prison. I still remember. Michigan is making people accept changes today. I wrote that in prison. Right. And the premise was I was going to find the OGs who I had been working with in prison and using them to go back and work with young people. You know, the ones that we had them convinced, using them to go back. And so I'm sitting in the day room, and in prison, when the news come on, and I watch the news, it's loud. You can't hear nothing. I hated that because it seemed like nobody cared about what was going on. Now, if Victor Newman and General Hospital or One Life to Live On, <laughs> you better not make a sound. You better not make it. And that always bothered me because guys would be in the day room and it like this, watching the stories and, it, and they knew everything that was going to happen next week. And I could never get that. I mean, they knew everything. They knew all of the actors. They knew the names. They knew what was happening. Next. All the stories. They watched. You better not make a sound when the stories on. You got big problems coming. And so with Nears, they don't care. But this particular day, I'm sitting in the day room, news come on, and it got quiet. Never happened since I've been there. And it was, it was this guy in, the, in my neighborhood with two of my cousins. Mind you, I haven't had no contact with my cousins. Two of my cousins in my neighborhood talking about gang intervention and prevention, preventing gangs. And I remember Bishop Obama, because he was, I couldn't tell if his eyes were open or not. You know, he was talking like this. He does look like his eyes are always shut. Always shut. You know what I'm talking about. And so, and I'm, I'm listening, and I'm, I'm like, whoa. And so immediately, I wrote a letter to my cousin. I hadn't talked to him. I said, man, whoever they, because I'm doing this in prison, and they don't know this. They don't know what I'm doing here in prison. And I wrote a letter, and I said, man, whoever that guy you guys with, y'all need to connect me to him, because he owns something. Not knowing that they were telling uh, Bishop Omar, that if you want to do anything in this neighborhood, you got to see our cousin who in prison. And I remember Bishop saying, I'm going to do something with him in prison. <laughs> and so uh, probably about six, seven months later, I was released. Uh, I met Bishop Omar at a Boston market. And I remember we, we, he started telling me about his program, Vision Regeneration. And as he's talking, I'm like, wow, that's not, and I'm saying, God, showing out. I'm saying you showing out. It was verbatim what I had wrote on the paper. And so I said, hold up, brother. And I go in my briefcase. I had a briefcase. And I give it to him. I said, read this. And he read and he looked at me and he said, wow. We knew then that God had connected us. And so I said, well, I'm going to throw this away since your program is already <laughs> up and running. There ain't no need to recreate the wheel. 
And me and that brother, uh, and it was funny, me and that brother been together ever since. Our first line of business was was uh, doing a peace treaty between the Bloods and Crips. And uh, so we said, we got to do a peace treaty. And then he said to me, this is a true story. Wait, you're the guys, you guys are also the first, right? like you were sponsored by the state. You're right. The first to sponsor. First, yeah. Exactly. So, so he said, we got to go to the crib neighborhood and uh, get them involved. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I didn't, I didn't think about that. I, ain't, I said, I ain't go that far. I said, we got to do that. I didn't know. He said, he said, me and him had to go. And so, mind you, that neighborhood we had a long history with. And so the last time they seen me, I was shooting at them or they were shooting at me. So now I got to go to that neighborhood, to those guys. And I, this is a true story. If y'all see Bishop Omar ask me to tell you word for word, he convinced me. But I had to pray to God, God, go ahead. So I went with him. We got into a white van, went to this neighborhood, uh, asked for some specific people who I was rivaled with. And some people pointed us to where they was at a crack house. And so we, we, it's a hot day in the summer. We go to this house where they say they were. We knocked on the door. It's a crack house. Uh, we hear somebody say, who is it? And they look out the window, and they see me. And when they see me, they look. You heard, what the? And all you heard was guns <laughs> clacking their guns. And, and now this, and this is a true story. And, and Bishop Omar said, put your hands up. So me and him, I was, I said, Lord, please. <laughs> You gonna let me go out like this? <laughs> I just survived prison. You gonna let me go out? It all you heard was guns. You know, they talking their guns, and so I put my hands up. Oh my God, Lord, please, please, Lord. And these dudes snatch open the door with their guns drawn and said, "What the? What are you doing over here?" And Bishop Omar started talking. God was with him because as he was talking, they were lowering their guns. So we said, man, look, we come in peace, and all we asking is permission from you guys to allow us to work with y'all young brothers and sisters so that they don't make the same mistake that we made when we were young, and that they have a future, and they be able to go to school and go to college, and da-da-da. And them brothers, they gave us passion. They said, yeah. And, and from that day, we uh, did a peace treaty with 270 Bloods and Crips. We did it at a barbecue place, because I remember them cribs, you got to feed them. People will kill each other when they're drinking and smoking, but they don't love each other while they eat. <laughs> That's a principle that we learn. You got to always feed people. If you're going into a tense meeting, take food. Especially barbecue. Especially barbecue. <laughs> it's, it's gonna, and so, man, we, we, we brought these brothers together at a barbecue place. It was very tense. Uh, and I'll never forget, ABC World News was feminist. Feminist when we was this first peace treaty, and it was a cameraman, older cameraman, and a look older white lady, and it was tense. We were nervous. We were nervous because we didn't know how dudes were pulling up, and putting their guns. We said, "Brother, hold on. you don't need the gun. You leave that in the car." <laughs> and, and so it was like that for real. And and I never forget uh, at the end, the white lady from uh, ABC World News, she said. 
Excuse me, y'all. I'm going to need everybody to get a little bit closer so we can take this picture. We said, ma'am. <laughs> this, this is not no act. No. She's like, we need everybody to get closer. No. We need to get out of here. But we end up having that day 270 young members who signed a peace treaty to say we'll no longer beef with each other because of our neighborhood. And it was that peace that led us into the schools uh, in South Dallas, where we then went to the principal, because they kicked out like 45 students on the first day. We said, let us walk them back in school and be responsible. This principal took a chance on us. And you got to understand, these, are, these guys that we had, they were felons. But they went into schools and monitored that peace process. The year prior, they had 342 gang incidents. When our guys went into the school, they had two. Wow. They had two. It was reduced to two. And we didn't know that the University of Minnesota was doing a study on what we were doing. And it, it was an independent blind study that showed that when we went into school those couple of years, the violence almost disappeared. We took those guys, those big brothers, and put them in a capacity where they could mentor those young people and show them their purpose and that they had a purpose and they were mentoring and, and standing at the bus stop, walking kids to school, and it was just, it was just phenomenal. Wow. Oh, man. Um, you know, the, the cool thing that I, when I, listening, you know, when I, when I get to go down and hear what you guys are doing, it's like, I hear a lot of people, like this whole nonviolence thing, it's like a popular people to talk about on social media right. but you guys are actually like legitimately doing something and I remember even Bishop talking about that the day after the officers were killed what, what was it that, that I don't right. want to ask you some questions but tell me that just a quick story it gives people a context of how ingrained you guys are in this yeah after that uh, tragic incident that happened downtown Dallas where those officers uh, was, uh, was murdered uh, Chief Brown, who was a friend of ours, called Bishop Omar because he felt like the city was on the brink of riot and, and was about to uh, be a lot of chaos. And so uh, we immediately kicked into gear because we knew the activists who did put on the march. We knew all those pe all the people that were part of it. We knew that we had to get the right people. And so we had a private meeting probably a day or two after, after the, uh, the incident. We, we made it where no media could be involved because none of the media stations, we didn't want them involved. And we had probably about 200 of effective people who led different communities, some of the activists and business and community. And we had them in this one room. Uh, it was a very, very, very tense meeting. I remember having some friends that was in town uh, from uh, D.C., and they witnessed it. Uh, but it was a very tense meeting. Uh, we had police officers, we had community, we had, we had all these people in one room a day or two after the shooting downtown. But it was the right people. And it started out tense, but we was able to navigate it to where it needed to be. And one of the best things, I mean, it was one of the beautiful things I've seen. Uh, well, we, we take this 
we didn't have to buy media paper. But at the end of that meeting, you had activists, police officers, hugging, crying, promising to work together and that kind of deal, man. It was it was powerful, super powerful. But it was those skills that we learned in dealing with gangs uh, that pushed us in the spotlight to deal with the challenges and the differences, whether it's on a national level or stuff that was going on. So it kind of just pushed us into that. We have always been uh, an organization, me and Bishop Omar, someone who believes in the power of working together, unity, and not being divided by whatever's happening nationally and whatever, you know, the, the, the conversation on race and all that stuff. We was always the ones who said, we have to work together, we have to see beyond race and all that good stuff. So they, we kind of seen in Dallas as those people. So that's how we were connected to the Cokes and Paul Ryan and everybody else, because we were always looking for solutions. Yeah, so so take, take me now, a significant portion of your work has been done to, to stop violence. Right. I know that you guys have, I think, just correct me if I'm wrong, I know you guys have been like mentoring on an ongoing basis a lot of the right. gang leaders in Dallas. Right. Help stop violence right. even further. You bring like you bring them, right. you know, to your place. And right, and we're doing it with uh, another thing that I've been doing for the last two years is uh, training police officers on how to engage with community. We do it with the young people too, what to do and and train the young people dealing with police officers. Uh, but we also I do this training with police officers where. Uh, 95% of the people that participate are young white officers who have no experience in working in communities. But I go in, it's interesting too, man, because it's tough crowd, but my survey at the end, they have to do surveys. I mean, it it starts in one place and it always God work and it go to another place. So this is how I do it, y'all. Before I go in, I have tickets. Tickets to have my... Uh, my bio on the screen, and it'll be a picture of me in my prison white, and it have my whole bio. So you got all these. I, I let these officers. I do it intentionally because it's about implicit bias. So I, I let these officers stare at that for probably about five or ten minutes before I come in the room. So by the time I come in the room, you pay them. Yes. By the time I come in the room, they read this thing. Everybody read it. Just looking at me like, who is this guy? And so, uh, but. Uh, I really, you know, through God, you know, it ain't make it ain't make the God work through me. She's been in those rooms, man. I can't explain what the magic that's happened in those. Cause I can see, I can feel as a speaker when this doing this. You know, I can feel that, and I like, and I, and I get it, and I always close with this story. Uh, I was in the bail bond business, uh, and I always close with this story all my classes. I was in the bail bond business. Uh, friend of mine put me in the bail bond business. I've been bail bond business for like 10 years. I won the best bail bond in Dallas. Uh, I was. Uh, but he had a brother. Uh, his name was Mike. I hope ain't nobody know him in here. <laughs> but Mike, now Mike, now Mike by all accounts uh, would say things that you can say you consider racist. You know, Mike would always do that. You know, Mike Mike would say things, you know, that you can consider racist. He would make these jokes. But I never responded to Mike. You know, I never would respond. Uh, 
but he would he would always make these jokes. Uh, and so one day Mike Mike said to me, "Hey Anton, let's go down and go flea market shopping." That's how you talk. Let's go down and flea market shopping. I said, "Why certainly, Mike? Let's go." You know, because again, I didn't allow that to affect me. And so I, I would get him my truck, big old truck, with the lift kit, you know, Ford. <laughs> <laughs> and we would go down to Collin County, and we would find these flea markets where we would go buy stuff like, you know, you do this stuff on the weekend. Uh, we buy stuff, you know, garage sales, everything. But the whole time I'm with Mike, Mike is every joke he can make, He's making those jokes. And I'm just smiling. I'm working too. I'm working. And so uh, one day me and Mike went. We got lost. And then we, when we met back up, he said, Anton, I got you a poster for your office down in South Dallas. I said, I said oh, that's nice, Mike. I said, what you kidding me? He said, I got you something you can hang on your wall. I said, what you kidding me, Mike? So he showed me, he gave me this poster, and I opened up the poster. The poster is, is, is a fence with about eight black babies, obviously in poverty, trying to climb over the fence. And he said, uh, in, in the caption of the, pro the, the poster said, last one in is a nigga. And so I got the poster, and I said, man, Mike, thank you, bro. Fold the poster up, and we rolled on. And I noticed the whole time we was riding, Mike was looking at me, you know, because he was waiting, he was trying to get the response, but I wouldn't give Mike the response that he wanted, right? And so by now, all officers, they tuned in, right? They tuned in like, whoa. And so, <laughs> and I said, uh, and so the next slide that I show as I'm telling that story is of me and this little brunette that's about six years old on my neck. That's Mike's daughter. That's, I ain't gonna say her name, because then y'all probably really know she is, who Mike is. But that's his daughter. And then I show another picture of us at, at his house at dinner, right? And then I began to explain to the officers that, and I, I, and I tied into what we had now as a country, you know? And I said, uh, one thing that I understood was that Mike's fantasy couldn't be my reality because Mike felt like that. That don't mean that I'm defined by how Mike felt. And I knew that for me, how I respond, if I'm going to respond like Jesus will respond, if I'm going to respond to love my neighbor regardless, if I'm going to respond like that, I know that it was some power in me responding the way I responded. And so fast forward, Mike became my brother. Mike's wife became my sister. Mike's daughter became my niece. That's my niece. And if she walk in here right now, she's going to say, Uncle Anton! That's how she talks. <laughs> and she's going to run and jump into my lap. Because I wanted to show them uh, in this current climate that we in, when I'm, when I'm talking to the police officers, that uh, in, in this current climate, that you have to practice, and I, and I tell them this, you have to practice radical empathy for the next person, regardless of who it is. It, this is not complex. It's, 
the situation that we're in is not complex, it's not fancy. We all are victims of the algorithm. We all are victims of the algorithm. What I mean by that, if I'm a police officer and I click on a video of a police officer getting shot by an African American, the algorithm's gonna feed me that. Every video gonna pop up gonna be that. If I'm an African American, and I click on a video of a police officer shooting an African-American. The algorithms feed me that. And nobody asks me the question, what is that doing to us? What is that doing to our subconscious? So we live in this, in this box where we think that everybody is like that. And so it makes us build these walls to where we don't want to cross. We don't want to because we done seen so much of that information into our subconscious. And that's police officers as well. I said, you're not immune to that. You, you are watching the same thing. You have the same effect. Most of my police officer friends say, you know, I said, if it's one thing that you would communicate, uh, that you would want me to communicate to your co colleagues, something that you can't say. These were I talked to my African-American police officers. They said, man, if you could tell them that when we talk, we talk with our hands. That don't mean you, that's a threat. In the police academy, you talk that the hand is the threat. And so, you get shot. And so I tell that to officers. And, 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 and I'm telling you, because I had a liberty to talk the way I talk, and I don't pull no punches, uh, to see the magic that happens in that room with those officers, even black versus white officers. By the time I get through with them, I, I pulled my belt out, and by the time I get through with it, <laughs> they hugging, and, 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 it, and it's, it's magic. But it's, it's, it's just a conversation. We all, like I said, we all have the same fears, the same goals, the same aspirations. We all, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. It's what you're doing every day. That's why I told them backstage. We were talking, I said, I said backstage. I mean, <laughs> There, there's there no backstage here. No backstage. <laughs> <laughs> I, I told Jordan, I said, man, one of the reasons that one of the reasons, and it's not complicated, that I rock with you is because your heart in the right place. You really mean what you're trying to do here. You really about the people. That's all I need to know. I don't even know nothing else. I don't even know nothing else. Your heart is in the right place. God is leading you. So that's why we rock. It ain't complicated. And I think a lot of times with the issues that's going on nationally, we make them so complicated when it's simply just having a conversation with somebody. I learned so much from, from people that I have a different, uh, of a, uh, different opinion than they do. I learned so much. That's how we challenge them and we grow when we have conversations. I go in to learn. Paul Ryan told me something. Paul Ryan is a good friend of mine. Uh, he said, Anton, he said, whenever I, whenever I present a policy, an idea, he said, I present it way over to the right. He said, but that ain't where I, I don't think it's going to stay right there. I expect somebody on the left to challenge it. And we keep going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. It'll end up where it needs to be. That's the way I look at a lot of this. We just got to have conversations with each other. Stop being afraid, have conversation with each other. And what we're going to find is that we have a lot of commonality. And if we really 
epitomize and represent what Jesus represents, then we would do that. That would be a part of what we do. We approach each day like that. Approach each day taking ourselves out that box that we call ourselves. And I love the fact that I can live free. I live free. To go from being in prison, my situation, to where I'm at now, and I'm super, super, super blessed. That's God. It ain't about me. It's about God. And I ain't the best or the most eloquent, but I demonstrate through action. I demonstrate through action. I would I would talk to anybody in here. I will connect with anybody in here. Anywhere we go around the country, I make it my business to go talk to the person way in the back. And you 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 just can't imagine what a conversation does for other people. You know, just being able to have that conversation. That's why it's so hard for me to talk about accomplishments and all that because I don't I don't want to give that no glory. I don't want to boast. I don't want to do none of that. I want to connect with people and show that we're human beings and we're living for Christ and we represent what Christ really represents. And that's and it's not complicated. It's just living and doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing. We're all one people, man. We're all family. We're all we can learn a lot from each other. It's just who willing to cross the aisle? I'm willing to cross the aisle. I'm willing. Hello. Here we go. The mic is definitely on. Um, it's hard to ask a question following up with that. You telling us that you're not eloquent, but very eloquently did talking about. Um, I do want to ask this question. What 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 can all of us do? Tell me a bit about where you see racism at work. Because I think that a lot of people have this perception that it's that it, that there's honestly a lot. I don't think it's like it's bad heart, but I think right. there's a perception that it, that it just this isn't a thing. Right. Where where is racism at work? Number one. Right. Number two. How do we how do we participate in little ways of helping bring an end to that? Right. I think I think that's a good question too, man. You know. I, I deal with it, and I like answering that question too. But I think, um, I think at the end of the day, um, we all have to be particip participative in the process. We all have to be participative in the process. What I mean by that is, we, if if we for justice, if we for truth, we have to defend justice, defend truth, represent that, no matter what, even if it inconvenience us. See, one of the things that the neighborhood says, the community says, when you have when officers say, and I'm using that situation since we were talking about it, when officers say, no snitch, you know, you got the no snitch policy. Uh, they ain't gonna tell it on they, they ain't gonna say nothing, they ain't gonna talk, blah, blah, blah. and then the community says, uh, in response, officers, you don't say nothing when your your colleague does something wrong. You feel me? And so now we're in this crazy dichotomy where we can't move. Where we can't where we can't move. Ain't nobody willing to compromise. I think if we're for justice and truth, and I think my, I have a friend, Danielle C. Red, she just wrote a book called Until We Reckon. Make sure y'all check that book out. It's really good. 
uh, middle-aged white lady, but she is just my friend, and she is by far the most uh, most uh, intelligent on this topic, right? And what she said was, she said, me as a as a white female, if I admit racism, what does that do for me? Does that mean I'm co-signing my extinction? You feel what I'm saying? What does that really? And, and we and, she, and we was having this real conversation in Detroit about what that really means. Does that mean that if I because you have this campaign of fear? Do you mean am I, what, when you say it's like admitting it like right. collectively or individually? Right. Because she, what she was saying is she said me as a, as a white person, and it was a good conversation we had. She said me as a white person, if I admit racism exists, am I in fact saying that I'm responsible. She said, if I admit racism exists, for me as a white person, does that say I'm responsible for all of the atrocities that happened to black people? You feel me? Yeah. And so when you start when you start having real conversations like that, like that, then we can get to where we need to be when we're having this conversation. And and I would say no. I would say no. But I think it's that fear of having this. I don't. Mike, I tell you, I, Mike. I, crazy Mike. Crazy Mike. I used to ride with Mike every day. And it didn't, because Mike felt that way, I didn't equally uh, return with hatred. I didn't. For me, I wanted to understand why Mike thought like that. Cause that's why I said I was working too. Because I was trying to learn. A lot of times we take it personal and, and deal with it on a personal. But I'm trying to learn. Because in my mind, I'm saying, I'm going to demonstrate by my actions to make, to, I'm going I'm to make Mike say, he's going to take everything back. By my actions. I'm going to show through my actions. And a lot of times, when we're talking about racism and all this stuff, not to say that it don't exist or negate the fact that it exists, but I'm saying we as a person, we have to say, what can we do? What can I do? I made a post on Facebook today. I said, most people, we was talking about the church, but I'm always trying to figure out something about the church. Uh, I said, most people go to church looking for flaws in people. But when I go to church, I'm searching for inspiration from God. And that's a difference. That's a difference. That's the difference. That's the difference right there. That's the difference. What can I do? What can you do? That's the question. That's the and it's not complicated. It's not complicated. Addressing something wrong doesn't mean that you you responsible or, or that you held accountable. That don't mean that. That means that we we just searching for truth and justice. And it don't, it don't, it don't undermine nothing. But we have to get into, and, I, and I'm gonna be quiet. But we have to get into a space where we can have these conversations, man. We gotta be able to have these conversations, in a, in, in, and it's not translating to hatred. Why we can't have conversations without it? Why we can't this? The fallacy of this culture is this is the greatest fallacy of this culture right here. If I disagree with you, that means I hate everything about you. I agree with you, that means I agree with everything. And that's not accurate. We are complex individuals. 
It's certain things that I can agree with you on respectfully. There's certain things that I can di disagree with you on respectfully that don't make me hate you. That's the problem with our society. So how do I call this? Like, if if I'm in the situation, how, how do how do how do we acknowledge? That, I guess that's that's the biggest that's the biggest thing that, that I'm trying to understand. Like genuinely, it's not like me interviewing you for the rest of the room. Right. No. This is how do I how do I acknowledge? How do I acknowledge it in a way that's healing and re reconciliatory? This, this, this is what I would say to you. Continue doing the work. Continue doing the work. Continue doing the work. When we personally do the work, that's all it takes is us doing the work. You don't, you don't have to have no excuse. I mean, you don't have to have no explanation or no, no, you know, no white paper on why we doing what we want to do that. Just do the just do the work. Do the work that Christ does. That's all you have to do. Just do the work. If you do the work, you don't have to have the conversation and trying to figure it out because people will make it complicated. And some people are not looking for the answer. Yeah. Some people are not looking for the answer. You have to be you have to you have to be cool with that. That some people are not looking for the answer. You know how many people, when when we were Paul Ryan and and and, 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 and Charles Coke and how many people, uh, boy, I've been through the mud, but I don't never let that stop me from doing the work. I'm gonna continue to do the work until my detractors become believers. Period. It's not. It's not about. No guilt, no shame. It's about just doing the work. The commandments. Love thy neighbor. Just doing the work. You do the work, you don't owe nobody no explanation. You just have to do the work. Just continue to do the work because when you do the work, you're going to attract the people that's about doing the work too. Period. Like my niece say, period. <laughs> just do the work. No, it's no conversation. It's no explanation. No white paper. It's just doing the work. What you doing? Just do the work. That's good, man. Um, I'm trying to field some of the questions that come in. Somebody asked a question. Um, what do you do? I, I kind of think I know you, how you're going to answer this, but, but we'll just throw it out there for the fun of it. What do you do for for people? You know, in conversations like this, what do you do for people who don't want? They, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to, you know, they don't want any help. They don't want the answer. That's, you know. That's life. I mean, you're you going to have that. I mean, you're going you gonna to have that. You're going to have people who are who not trying to hear it. The time you spend trying to convince them, you missing time with somebody who's trying to get it. That's right. Period. I used to be like that. And I admit, I used to try to convince everybody. I won't happen to everybody got it. <laughs> Until I realize I'm neglecting the people that want it. And you can constantly build with the people that want it. You're not going to get everybody. Constantly build. When that person is ready, they'll come. It's a lot of friends and people just personally for me 
who didn't understand when we first started, who had a lot to say, uh, had a lot to say when we, we started. And um, to this day, they end up becoming believers. Uh, and, and, the, and the good thing, the crazy thing, is I've never held it against them. See, I've never held it against them. When they, when, they, when they didn't understand it, because I understood that most people developed in stages. Some developed to get it quicker than others. And so if God was patient enough with me, I got to be patient enough with somebody else. So I can't have a judgment towards somebody who don't get it. I just have to keep working until they get it. I can't judge that person to say, well, I, you know, this person don't get it and they ain't seeing it my way and da 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 you know. That's not God. I just have to continue to do the work and then when that person get it, because God was patient with me, it was, I'm quite sure he was, God was upset with me. But he, but, he, but he stayed with me. So I have to do the same way for my fellow man, the same thing. But I'm, but I'm saying that we, you just have to focus on the people who get it and keep working. And, and again, keep saying what I said, is those people who doubted, those people who had something to say, I never held that against them. I never held that in my heart against them. Because I felt if I held it in my heart, then I'm just like them. That's the difference. And in due time, they'll get it. Some of the same people, uh, they work for us. And I love them the same. Because I understand. So I'm going to throw this last, this last one. A lot of questions came through, but Can you um, can you talk can you talk about that just just for just to kind of say that first part again? Just just seeing seeing yourself in others. You know, you you mentioned that a few right, times right. when you were talking. Right. And that being sort of like this road thing. Right. I think at the end of the day, and I I try to sum it, at the end of the day, uh, you can you never know what the next person is going through. One of the things that Bishop Omar always said is that he, he instilled in me earlier that um, if there's somebody else out there that's going through something worse than you and they made it, and if they made it, you can make it, right? I never, for, I never forgot that grid in my head. And so when I'm looking at people and I'm dealing with people, I have to see myself in the different stages that I, that I see people. And so when you learn to see people in the stages, because we ain't always been, you know, where we at now. We've all kind of gradually, you know, got to the place we at. But, but, but being able to look at somebody through the stages of, of development of where you were, you know, uh, allows for you to have that kind of empathy, that radical empathy for the next person, because that's what we missing being able to look at the next person, not judge that person, and, and, and have that empathy for them. You know, a lot of times, uh, this, this, this ego box of ours, this ego box of ours, 
prevent us from from being able to feel and see and experience what somebody else is experiencing. Because that ego, the ego's job is to protect us. You know, they lie to us too. You know, the ego make us think we tough, think we the best thing going. You know, it's gonna protect us, the fight or flight. You know, it's all of that. But when we learn to disconnect from the ego box, then we can understand people. It's all about, I think that's the greatest thing. Jesus, the example of Jesus was the fact that he understood people. He understood people. When I when I studied Jesus, I am more impressed with how he treated people. And I'm trying to pattern my life. It's many times that I done passed the life and doubled back around to give a homeless person some money. You know, I pull up at the light, lit my window, and then I think about it. You know, I try not to look at it, I pull off, and then I think about it. You may be entertaining an angel. And, and I turn around. Here, man, get these $2. <laughs> get these $2. But, yeah, it's, it's that. It's just constantly, it's that constantly thanking people. If you can see yourself in people, you can connect with people and being vulnerable. Being vulnerable. If you can be vulnerable, when you are vulnerable, you out that box, you are truly vulnerable. That's what true connection happens at. When we remove that mask that we all wear, that says who we are, our title, our this, our that, our status, our class. When we can remove that mask and be totally transparent and vulnerable. That's what transformation, that's what connection, that all that stuff happens there. I try to be as vulnerable as possible. Uh, and I know it's not it's, it's not easy for most people, you know, just to be vulnerable. But I'm telling you, that's where the magic happens at. When you can just be vulnerable with people and just be who you are. Not the mask. Be who you are. It's freedom in that. It's freedom. Gosh, man. I just want you to know, I really love, love you, man. I love your heart. And I love, I you. love everything you're doing. And it, it is. It really is genuinely an inspiration. I think... I can speak for everybody here that there's a there's, there's a sense of the integrity of your life in Christ, and so thank you for that, man. This is this has been a massive blessing. Thank you in this beautiful community that I hope y'all accept me back, but I will be back. No, no, we will. That's, that's my only deal. You, you have to come back and have a part two with me. Oh, yeah. I will. I will. I love it. Yeah. We have to have the worship to kick it off. We have to have the worship to kick it off. All right. Well, let's give Antonio a hand.